Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. How are you all? In, in the work of a church, there are officers who are set apart by the laying on of hands and prayer, deacons, elders, and pastors or teaching elders, and uh, when we ordain pastors to pastoral ministry, we have a charge to the congregation and a charge to the pastor. And this morning I'm going to give a charge to the elders, and what I'm going to use is the, a chapter from the book on the elders that, I've, that we've published recently. And I'm going to cut out some of the sections that don't really fit. But um, the work of a, the, the job of an elder is a very difficult work. Uh, in heaven now, Adam, I'm not sure which he'd be happier that he doesn't have to do the work of a physician or the work of an elder. <laughs> I'm convinced that he's very relieved to be done with both. And I'm not sure which stinks more, sick bodies or sick souls. The, the other day I was uh, with Jody, with Don, and with Pat, and we were talking about uh, the difficulty of Adam's work as a doctor. And if, if you were friends with him, or if you are a patient occasionally, right, uh, you know that it must be difficult to be a doctor, you know? Uh, seeing naked bodies, smelling naked smells, touching tumors, cutting. And that really is a good analogy for the work of, uh, of elders, actually, and pastors and deacons, really. Um, so anyhow, I'm going to be reading, stopping, reading, stopping, but this is from the book Elders Reformed, which we... Uh, which we printed this last year, and, and I think I told, maybe I didn't tell this congregation, I told the first one that at the beginning, I, we dedicated this book to Joel Belts and to Don Jarrett. Don was an elder up in Wisconsin with his wife, Evelyn, you remember? And then um, Joel is a friend who's in the PCA, and sometimes when we had problems here, I would call Joel and ask for his advice. Well, once Adam died, I didn't have to worry about the jealousy of the other elders, and I put Adam's name in. So I, I had the joy at Christmas of giving Don a copy of the book where Adam's name is added. So now it's dedicated to Joel, to Don. Come on. And Adam, our good doctor, our good physician. Okay. Here's the text this morning. It's from Hebrews. You all know it by heart, probably. This is God's word. It's eternally true. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. <laughs> I just love that verse. I'll read it again. Obey your leaders, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, 
for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. This is the word of the Lord. So we're turning to the elder's duty. And in this particular chapter, we're dealing with the elder's duty to care for individual sheep. The previous chapter is the elder's duty to care for the whole flock. There's a difference between the work you do in caring for a flock and the work you do caring for sheep. What comes first is the flock, not the sheep. And there are threats to the flock that come that you have to deal with not because you care about individual sheep, but because in a unique way, the honor of Christ is at stake with the flock. In a way, it isn't with the individual sheep. It's the flock that's the bride of Christ. And so sometimes you have to be willing to take casualties with individual sheep because you want to protect the flock. Does this make sense to you? Anybody that's studied military history knows this. You have to sacrifice soldiers for the sake of the country, for the sake of the army, the ship, Okay. But this chapter is on the individual sheep. Uh, This duty differs from the duty of guarding the flock. Although the protection of the entire flock comes first in the elders' prayer, it is a common sin in session meetings. Session is the word we use for an individual discrete meeting of a session of elders. It is a common thing when elders get together and have meetings for elders to tell fellow elders if they're great concern for the church, okay? While demonstrating little concern and no love for any individual sheep. But it's impossible because love for mankind can never rise above love for individual men or women or children. Each of us should test our concern for the body of Christ as a group by examining our concern for individuals within the group. If during a session meeting an elder argues strenuously for something that he claims is wanted by the people of the church, okay, but his fellow elders have long observed this elder's lack of hospitality or intimacy with families and individuals of the congregation, it's likely he's using his expression of concern for the church as a cover for his own personal desires or perhaps the desires of his wife. Does this make sense to you? Now, love is proven by its individuality and its specificity and its practicality, okay? Concern and leadership are demonstrated in the small thing. Our Lord said, he who is faithful in very little things is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much, Luke 16, 10. We see this principle in the listing of qualifications for the office of elder. Scripture commands elders to be men who have demonstrated their ability to manage their own small household. It says in Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.5, if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Our Lord was so tender in his relationships with individuals. Think of his care for the Samaritan woman at the well. Think of his never-ending work healing individuals. 
Think of his tears for dead Lazarus and his mourning sisters. Think of his description of his own priorities concerning the sheep. He is the one who said in Luke 15, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Think of Jesus' sensitivity to the hunger pangs of the souls who had gathered to listen to his teaching. He forbade his disciples to send them off away to the village to fend for themselves. Think of his rebuke of the disciples when they tried to get blind Bartimaeus to shut up when he was calling, crying out for Jesus. Think of his response when the disciples tried to shoo the children off. And how did Jesus respond? He said in Matthew 14, (coughs) Let the little children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. After laying his hands on them. Jesus touched the little ones. And you know, if he laid his hands on them, he was blessing them. He was praying to his father for the little ones. Mothers will remember what was prophesied of our Lord in Isaiah 40. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. (laughs) I mean, do you feel love for Jesus? This is a description of him. Jesus never stopped loving and caring for individuals, even when they turned away from them. He loved them still. For some elders, our desire to shepherd from a distance, shepherding the flock as a whole, and not bothering with individuals, is driven by our fear of rejection. If you're a pastor or elder, you know this. Look inside as an elder and see if you are willing to suffer the rejection of your sheep. How often our avoidance of knowing our sheep is simply our self-defense mechanism against all of our fears. You know this as fathers and mothers in your relationship with your children, right? Maybe they'll reject your love. Maybe they'll think your questions are impertinent. It's none of your business. Maybe they want to be one in a herd rather than one in a flock. You always have children like that that hide in the family, you know. Maybe they'll mistake your intentions and think you're a busybody or worse, a self-righteous moralist. Maybe they think you shouldn't be an elder and maybe they voted against you. There are always people that vote against us, you know. I see David and Jill here this morning, and remember that I got 76% of the vote at my prior church. (laughs) That means 24% of the vote voted against me. It was a a sweet welcome. (laughs) 
the best way to avoid rejection actually is to avoid the sheep. Jesus was despised, though, and this did not stop him. It did not keep him from loving individuals. He suffered their opposition, and he suffered their rejection constantly. And this had been prophesied beforehand. In Isaiah 53, it says he was despised and rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. It's very interesting that immediately after Jesus blessed the children, as I read about earlier, we have the account of the rich young ruler. And what we often don't think about in that account is the fact that Jesus knew beforehand how that was going to turn out. He knew he was going to be rejected. Now listen to the story. We read it in Mark 10, looking at him, Jesus felt love for him, this rich young ruler, and he said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. So rejection is the currency of fathers and mothers. If you're not worried about being rejected by your wife because of your discipline of your children, if you're not rejected, worried about being rejected by your daughter as a mother when she reaches her teenage years, you're not doing your work, right? I mean, you understand this. Leadership depends upon looking in the face of rejection and doing what's right despite it. At this point in our lives, and now I have to stop and say this book is being written by Jürgen von Hagen and by me, so this goes to our instead of me. At this point in our lives, both of your writers, Jürgen is a pastor over in Germany, at this point in our lives, both of your writers have been blessed by God with congregations whose members love and listen to their elders and their shepherds. The work of the elders of our two congregations is often joyful, What would we counsel you as an elder when your sheep do not respect you? When they won't listen to your counsel and when they repudiate your authority. When they take you for granted and, and sometimes when they actually do despise you. And the answer is live by faith. Buck up. Do our work looking to God for our reward. Both Jürgen and I have had sheep who have absolutely despised and slandered us both privately and publicly. But this is nothing new. This is as old as the hills for this to happen. So I use as an illustration here the case of Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was a man who ended up being responsible for an awful lot of the pastors that were in Uh, the churches of England. It turned out an inordinate number of pastors ended up having been under him while they went to college, and then they went out and they became pastors, all right? And he was a pastor in Cambridge over in England in the 1800s. 
He was put into the pulpit of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge when he was at the tender age of 23 years old. He was despised by his congregation. Okay? Simeon had never served as a rector's assistant or a curate, and so when his bishop, Bishop Ellie, placed him as the rector of Holy Trinity, Simeon jumped past all the curates that were in line before him. (laughs) And that's never a good look, is it? When everybody else has been waiting to get the promotion, and then this young punk comes along, and he's put into the position, right? And one of the people he passed by who had put in his time as a curate was a guy named John Hammond. And John Hammond was the much-loved assistant to Simeon's predecessor, whom the parishioners at Holy Trinity had petitioned the bishop to put in as the new rector. Now, you get the setup, right? You've got the well-loved assistant. Everybody loves him. And now the pastor's retired. And instead of putting that dude in, what do they do? They get some 23-year-old punk from outside, and the people were furious at this. All right. While the congregation had to submit to the bishop in his appointment of Simeon as a rector, they themselves had the right to hire a lecturer for the church, chosen and paid by subscription of the congregation's members. Now, I'm going to come back to this at the end of our sermon this morning, but let me explain it to you. Back in the 1600s, since it was a state church and it was hierarchical, often men would be put into individual churches who were completely irresponsible and didn't give a rip about the church or the souls in the church. And what they held, anybody want to say the word? It's a word you don't often get to say. They held a sinecure. And a sinecure is without cure. And in other words, these men were in their jobs and they never cured any of the souls of their church, but they got the money. And so they had a sinecure. It's a wonderful word, right? And so what happened was the rich men who had land in those parishes would go together and they would hire somebody who would come in Sundays and preach other than their pastor. And these things were called lectureships. And there was such a lectureship at this Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge Two centuries later, okay, Archbishop Laud would have been back in the 1600s and they would have bypassed his appointments by putting in men that they hired and subscribed to. And so at this Holy Trinity Church, when Simeon was put in as the pastor, what the church did to get around what they didn't like is they hired this other guy to be their lecturer. You all with me? And so they put John Hammond into this lectureship, and he had the right every Sunday of preaching at a separate worship service in the afternoon than the morning one, and he had the right of setting up that service and doing it the way he wanted. And so the church had everything they wanted. They didn't want Simeon. They wanted this guy. And back then, the reason they didn't want Simeon was because actually the guy that was put in was good. And they didn't want somebody who wasn't going to tickle their ears, all right? 
So they'd go in the afternoon. And they set this, this Hammond guy's salary, who gave him the lecture in the afternoon, and it was double the salary that Charles Simeon had. So you feel the setup here, right? And so Simeon, on Sunday, November 10, 1782, the day after his appointment as rector, he preached for the first time in Holy Trinity Church, and I'm reading from the biography now, okay? So I'm reading a book, and now there's a quote in the book. Quote, the church wardens and church council were infuriated. Their first reaction was to encourage all the regular pew holders to fix locks on their pews, so that while staying away from the service themselves in protest, no one else could be admitted to their empty seats, thus leaving the preacher with a sea of vacant places before him. So those who did in fact wish to attend had either to stand in the aisles or sit on benches in obscure corners of the church. When Simeon had further seats provided, so he went out and bought some benches, and he brought them in church and put them in the aisles, right? Then the furious leaders of the church threw the benches out into the churchyard. I mean, this is just the stuff of churches. This is who we are. You know, it's who I am. And it's who you are. And so, okay, life is hard. Put on your big girl pants. You're a mother. You know, your grandmother, and you have to talk to your, your daughter-in-law. You know, you're a shepherd. You're an elder. Put on your big boy pants and tell your wife to put on her big girl pants. This is what our life is. It's always our life, okay? It's interesting that he couldn't get his, uh, his parishioners to come and let him talk to them. And so he ended up... They wouldn't even let him visit our homes, and so he ended up having a Bible study in somebody's home, and very quickly the Bible study was too large for the home. And this went on for five years, that man held that lectureship Sunday afternoon. Okay. So what do we have to complain about? Pastors and elders have always suffered headbutts from the rams of their flock, and from the ewes. Our master warned anyone who would follow him, he'd have to deny himself and take up his cross. What we really have to keep our thoughts centered on is not the opposition we suffer. Instead, we have to ask ourselves what our master will say to us when the time comes to give an account of our protection of his sheep. (laughs) Think of what Jeremiah suffered. Think of what Jesus suffered. Think of the Apostle Paul's suffering, think of the obloquy and the hatred that attended the ministries of men like Simeon and Edwards and Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Let the love of Christ dwelling in you cover over the disrespect and repudiation of your office and get busy. Right? Right? Love your sheep. Love the teachable ones, but love even more the unteachable ones. Love your sheep, both the submissive ones, but love even more the rebellious ones. Love your sheep and do your work well, always by faith. Now, some specifics. And the first specific, I'm going to cut an awful lot out of uh, the first specific. Because it's just, it's very painful to talk about, okay? 
and it's the issue of having to protect the bodies of your sheep. And this might be a bit of a shock to you to think that Adam would talk to some of his patients about their souls. But if I say that to you, 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 you understand, of course Adam would do that, right? How do you separate body and soul as a physician? Well, the same thing is true with elders. Elders have to be prepared to, to heal the bodies of their people. And you say, well, what do you mean? Do they have the ability of writing prescriptions for penicillin or for, you know, amoxicillin? No, no, no. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about abuse. And abuse is a constant thing in every church. There's not a church that doesn't have abuse. And we know about it in the church in Corinth. The abuse there was incest. Yesterday or the day before yesterday, I got a phone call from a pastor in another state, and the pastor's calling me because he's scared. He has a meeting set up that day to deal with a horrible situation in a family, and this is just constant in the ministry. And so we're talking it over, and it's like, you know, it's, it, it's so old and so constant that you get to the point where it's like playing a violin or piano, it's muscle memory, or doing reps you know, as, as, as an athlete, you just get muscle memory of this stuff, right? And in this particular case, the abuse was, and you, you know, you all think that the abuse is always men because the only sin that anybody today seems to be able to recognize is the sin of men. But of course, abuse is unbelievably frequently committed by women, <laughs> by mothers, by wives, by sisters, you know. And in this case, the perp, if you don't mind me saying so, was a woman. It was the mother of the home, okay? And so I'm listening to what's going on in the home, and, uh, you know, you never stop, just, uh, and so, of course, he, he, he explains it to me, and then he, he hesitates, and he pauses, and I actually thought about saying to him, don't worry, I'll say it for you. I knew what was coming. And the next thing he said, of course, was that the wife beat, also beat her husband. It's constant. Wake up, people. Okay? Women commit sins also. And so if a pastor and an elder and a deacon are working with a family, for heaven's sakes, don't think that you don't have any obligation to step in when you see that there are problems. It's so sad to me to see the internet filled with all these women who are writing up their criticisms of pastors and leaders. And to see how in almost every case, you've got leaders who had every opportunity to know what was going on and chose not to do anything about it, right? What are we going to do? We're going to let women be the ones that discipline all the leaders of our churches? It's just disgusting. Let's put our big boy pants on and see what we see. And I know that you think that that doesn't go on here, but it does go on here. I was thinking earlier, I wonder if I were to actually stop and think about every family and marriage and every person in this church, I wonder what the percentage of people in this church are who have either abused or been abused. 
I don't want to think about it. Because the truth is, even Christian homes have horrible sins in them, and a huge proportion of us in this church have been abused and have abused. And so, listen, can we have churches that are free to have sinners? Real sinners. And can we love sinners? I mean, honestly. Is that really such a, such a problem? Can't we love each other in our sin? Isn't that what Jesus came to save us from? And don't we see it in the book of Corinthians? And so I know it's hard for you to realize that your elders have to talk to you about abuse. But let them. Nobody else is going to talk to you about it. What, do you have to just have the cops talk to you about it? Isn't it infinitely better to have a Christian who knows their sin talk to you about your sin? So afterwards, one of our members came up to me after the first service, and he was talking to me about how difficult it is for us to deal with abuse. And he was saying, you know, because I'm, I'm making the case that elders need to do this. You can't just be a spiritual elder and not see what you're seeing and deal with it, right? And he was saying, I was thinking about how difficult it is for us in a congregation to think about uh, the fact that we have obligations to help when there's sin in a home. And he said, I was thinking about David, King David, and he said, it occurred to me that David, when he was, what, 14, 15, and the bear and the lion came along, what did David do? David grabbed the lamb out of their mouth, the sheep, and he killed him. And he said, so in other words, what does it require to handle serious danger to people we love? And he said, really, all it requires is that you're a man. You don't have to be an elder, you know? You don't have to be an elder. If you were a shepherd and you saw a lion or bear come after you, you'd do something. And so we have to be a church that gives each other permission, right, to do something. It's hard. Uh, after he got done telling me this, you saw us sitting up here. I said to him, yeah, I remember a case where somebody in this church came to me, and I mean, you know, as a pastor, after a while, you don't get surprised, right, supposedly. But I mean, this dude, when he told me what he had to confess, it was like, I, you know, you're sitting there, you're looking at him, it's the same eyes, the same hair, the same clothing, but everything else has changed, he just can't tell it as he confesses his sin to you, but everything else has changed because you're sitting there thinking, no, no, can't be, can't be, can't be. But you don't say that because you want him to keep talking. But I, and this was not that long ago, I, had, I am so old and so experienced that I was listening to him and observing myself at the same time. And what I said to myself is, get help! Because if you don't get help, you're not going to handle this right. So you know what I did? Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters, right? So I got up out of my, could you hold it just, just for a second? Hold it just for a second, right there. And I got up out of my chair and I walked across to Max. Max. 
I said, Max, I need you. Help. Help. And Max gets up, cheerfully walks into my office, sits down, and busted the ghost. <laughs> he was my ghost buster. He was so manly, unapologetic, so direct, so, no drama. He, he, he did, by the way, I'll bet he's watching. I love you, Max. He's in quarantine. Oh, what a help. And sanity came back to that room. So will you all please agree with me that as mothers and fathers and elders and deacons and pastors, whatever we are, school teachers, nurses, whatever we are, we have to see what we see and we have to care for their bodies and not make a big show out of having something to teach them spiritually while we know what we know. And if you don't know what you know, one of the reasons often is that your wife isn't helping you. And so that's another thing I want to say to you is, in our work, we always have to have our wives helping us. I have in the book a statement, and I want to read it to you because it's maybe the funniest statement in this whole book. And I know you're all thinking it's a really, it's a howler right now, right? You're just all, it's giggling, right? Right. But you'll giggle at this one. At this point, I stop and I say, men and women are different, you know. It's like, I actually wrote this in a book. <laughs> Men and women are different, you know. We know different things through our different ways of knowing. If it wasn't just Aquila, but also Priscilla, who had knowledge to give as help to Apollos, how much more do our wives have knowledge we need in order to care for our sheep conscientiously and wisely? Isn't that beautiful? Elders and their wives have to be intimate with their sheep. Elders and their wives must know their sheep. The sheep must know their elders and their wives. The sheep would feel safe standing next to their elders and being fed by them and protected by them. The godly wife strengthens her husband in his shepherding work. Too many elders have a wife whose zeal for her husband's care for the household ends with herself and her children never extending to the well-being of the household of faith, which is the church of the living God. Martin Bucer, dear, dear friend of John Calvin at the same time up in Strasbourg, he says this, God has created the woman to be a help to the man and that they might together live godly lives. Therefore, when marriage has been entered on and continued in the Lord, in a Christian marriage, the wife does not separate her husband from the Lord. Come on, people. There are a number of women here who have separated your husband from the Lord. There are men here who have separated your wife from the Lord. That's not right. And if I'm saying it, that means it happens. If Bucer says it, that means it happens. So instead of getting all dramatic, like we're watching a movie or something, you know, this is not a movie. This is real. Husbands separate their wives from the Lord. Wives separate their husbands from the Lord. Bucer is saying to wives, don't separate your husband from the Lord. 
And what he says is this. He says, and when the wife is also zealous for the kingdom of God, her husband will please her more by not neglecting the work of the Lord, but by carrying it out faithfully and well. Do you see this? One of the greatest dangers we have in pastoral ministry and in eldership and deacons is resentment of the wives of their husband's work for the church. We can't do that. We can't tolerate that in our own homes or anybody else's home. All right. Now, what a blessing it is when we see husbands and wives working together in the ministry. Uh, the souls and the bodies of our sheep are bound together and separate, just as the Apostle James says, as a brother or sisters without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? That's James chapter 2, 15 and 16. Dear elders, we are our brother's keepers, both soul and body. John Calvin's fellow reformer in Strasbourg, Martin Bucer notes the connection between caring for the souls and bodies of God's sheep. He says this, quote, the particularities of the work of an elder are not science, but art. Excuse me. Where the office of the care of souls is properly ordered in practice, we will not expect to see anything much lacking in this other ministry of care to the body. And of course it makes sense that Adam, being a good physician, a good doctor, was also good at caring for our souls including mine. Now, I'm going to skip over some specificity. In here in the book, I deal, uh, Jurgen and I deal at length with the question of how to recognize uh, physical abuse, battering, and sexual abuse. And yes, it is in your church, and we end this section by trying to say to people, it's in your church, it's in your church, it's in your church, it's in your church, because nobody believes it's what? in your church. And so the way we do it is we quote from the session minutes, the elders' minutes from their meeting 500 years ago in Geneva. Every week, Calvin spent Thursday evenings meeting with people for disciplinary issues in Geneva, he and the other elders and pastors. And we have a record of what they dealt with in those meetings, okay? And I'm going to read from that record, the session minutes. And all they do is they just have a, a short line saying this case of this, this case of this. So the first one is, this is from 1543, Matthew Cannard because of murmuring. So one guy they're meeting with because he's always whining and complaining, okay? Then Jehan Ostot's weaver, why he left his wife in Leon. And then the wife of D. Mirabello, because she murmurs at the sermons, <laughs> you know. And then Claude, the farm laborer, and Coletta's wife, who beat each other. That's what it says. They beat each other, okay? And then whether the children of Japan have done with their mother what the council ordered them to do at the last meeting. So they're following up. And then Angeline de Croix, who does nothing but get angry at her daughter-in-law and does nothing but insult her every day. <laughs> Come on, laugh. Thank you. Thank you. 
And then the son of Coletta Shabbatoz, who is disobedient to his mother. And then Mari Savua, boatman, and his wife, who do not live together, and she is said to fornicate and doesn't sleep with her husband. And then Marguerite, wife of a farm laborer who lives at Grutz's house because her small child was left to die, which strangled itself in the cradle, and she did not bother to go see it all day, and the neighbors told her she should go to her child, and she answered that it was asleep, and it slept so much that she found it strangled. You all with me? And then... Claude Moiron should be asked. So here's a guy, Claude Moiron. They're going to meet with him, and they're going to ask him these four questions. Number one, whether he is married. Number two, whether he did not keep with his wife and his daughters a respectable girl who fornicated with him. Number three, whether he did not often beat his wife to a fusion of blood because she was sad. And number four, whether he did not threaten to beat his daughters if they said anything about it. I I love having you here, both of you. Pastor and his wife who've retired. And it's like, I don't know where you get off not doing this work anymore. What gives you the right? (laughs) You know? This is our life. This was the life of all the elders appointed by Moses in the wilderness. This is who we are as God's people. This is who we are. And we need help. We need help. We get into sins in our homes where we can't handle it. Well, who else are you going to call? Shouldn't the elders and their wives be people that you think maybe have an idea what sin is? You know? And are willing to get messy helping you. You know? And that's the gospel. That's grace. That we know what it is to be sinners. You remember even Jesus, what it says in Hebrews, that he was tempted in all ways like as we are. It says in Hebrews that he's a priest that can sympathize with us. And if Jesus, who is a sinless one, how much more Tim and Mary Lay? You know. Now, I want to... To, to bring it to conclusion, I want to uh, go through um, something that uh, something that Bucer, I found reading Bucer incredibly helpful in, in our work on this book. And Bucer and Calvin were very tender with each other. So when Calvin got kicked out of Geneva twice because of conflicts with the civil authorities, the city fathers, He'd go up to Strasbourg. That's where he'd go. And so when you read Bucer, you know that you're reading the love and work of a man that Calvin just absolutely copied, loved, looked to as an authority in his life. And Bucer says this in his book. He says, uh, here is the work 
of elders. Um, he says, quote, the five tasks of the care of souls are searching for and finding all the lost sheep, two, bringing back the strays, three, healing the injured, four, strengthening the ailing, and five, guarding the healthy ones and feeding them in the right way. Okay, now we're going to go through these five things. Number one, seeking and finding lost sheep. So, Scott isn't here today. Oh, wait, where is he? Oh, there you are, huh? Well, when I, when I came to Bloomington, I, I came into this church, and I had a secretary who happened to be uh, maybe related to you, okay? And the secretary was just this dear woman, and she was a hard worker, and she loved people, and she gave more time than they were paying her for, trust me. And she just tried to do everything she could to serve the church. Well, one of the problems in this church is that the elders never, ever had anything to do with people that had left the church. That was one of their weaknesses, and they just didn't care for the sheep. Well, this secretary had to keep the rules of the church. It was like six, seven hundred individual family units, you know? And, and so she would come out with the list every, every once in a while. And back then you would mail the church newsletter. And, and so she'd feel the tension between there being, you know, maybe 50 people who hadn't been at church for a year, right? You with me? And so she'd look at this. And of course, the elders weren't looking at it. And so she'd think, well, this is stupid. They're not coming to church anymore. And so she'd take the names off the list. Now you realize that that's church discipline, right? You realize that if you're a shepherd, you're supposed to look at who's missing from the flock and go out and find them. But the elders weren't doing it. And so the only discipline in that church was the secretary taking people off the list. I didn't fault her for doing it at all. She was doing what she had to do. Otherwise, it would have just voluminated, you know? We would have been, you know, we would have been sending church newsletters to sailors who had been at the North Pole for 10 years, you know? In an icebreaker in the summer. We are supposed to go out and seek and find the lost. Sessions should regularly review their membership rules, and an elder, a pastor, should be assigned to go and visit the lost, name by name. If they've left town, we can call them and send them a letter or an email, not a text, explaining that we've missed seeing them, wondering if things are well with them, if they're still in town. We can go and meet with them. We can choose in the elders' meeting which elder is best to go and meet with them. It may be I shouldn't go. It may be I should go. In the elders' meeting, we talk about whether or not she started dating an unbeliever, and that's why she stopped coming. Doesn't that make sense? Don't you want shepherds that actually know what the particular sicknesses are that you're prone to? And we 
don't talk about it as a way of condemning her. We talk about it because we love her and we want to figure out if there's a way that we can go and visit with her and warn her again without her just being furious. So go out and seek the lost. Set up mechanisms and administrative responsibilities and redundancy to those responsibilities so that you as elders and pastors can't escape noticing who is missing. And then going out to search for them. Here in this congregation, it's a key part of our pastoral staff and elders meetings to discuss people who are missing or in need, and we do it name by name. We expect our elders and pastors to notice each Lord's Day who is missing and to know why. Now, I know you can make ill of that if you want to. You can say, well, that's nasty. I'm not talking about, well, they were here this week, they weren't here this week, they were here this week, they were not here this week. But I am talking about the fact that I think any decent shepherd can look at his flock in an instant and know who's missing. I mean, I know it. I can go home Sunday morning without ever thinking about it Sunday. I can go home and say to Mary, hey, so-and-so wasn't there, and she knows already they weren't there. And I'm not talking about people that we have trouble with. I'm just saying, you know your sheep. Have you ever been with a farmer, a dairy farmer? Don, you're Dutch. You must have been inside a milk parlor, right? I mean, there's not one dairy farmer that doesn't know. Even if his, he has so many cows, they only have numbers. And so that's what we should do. And we don't go out and say to people, why weren't you there last week? But we do notice when there's a progression or regression or decay, where over a period of months, it goes from once a month that they're missing to twice a month to three times a month, right? This is what we have to do. Now, once we find the lost, then it's our job to bring them back. And I want to say that um, in bringing back sheep to a church, Those of us who have the job of caring for them should be very tender and humble. Often they will have been offended by me, by another pastor or another elder. And when we go to them, we should talk to them and say, have I hurt you and have I offended you? Has somebody else? And they should be free to say to us, yes, you know, you really are an ass. And then you can say, yeah, my wife says that to me. And then hopefully right? Hopefully, they can commit themselves again to having a you-know-what for a shepherd. Don't get on your high horse and think you could do a better job. It's hard. Okay? I had one day this week when I got done with those 24 hours, I said to my wife, don't talk to me. And I was very kind, but just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. <laughs> that, was, that was the special gift I wanted from her. Leave me alone. And so when we come to you and you're missing and we've offended you, don't be shocked. We're sinners. And if we ask you if we've offended you, tell us yes and tell us how we've offended you and give us a chance to say we're sorry. And then don't punish us. Forgive us. Okay? 
Now, one other thing about this issue of bringing sheep back. If the issue in this home, and the reason they're not there, and this happens regularly, is that the father is looking at pornography, and he has been being dealt with by an elder or two elders, and he refuses to stop, and his wife is ready to divorce him, and the children are going to hell in a handbasket, and you show up to try to get that father to come back to church, and you say, have I offended you in such in some way, I'm ready to, to, to punch you in the face. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> the reason this man is not there is because he's an unrepentant sinner. And that sin will destroy his marriage and his home. And if you go in and say, well, if I offended you in some way, you're being an idiot. Don't give him a chance, because undoubtedly this is the kind of guy that will then give you a 30-minute list of all the ways you've offended him. And that's not the problem. Are you all with me? Huh? Okay, don't worry, I'll be done soon. Okay, so you have to work bringing back the strays. Then you have to work healing the injured. Uh, and this is where I wanted to write about Adam, because in the last two years, I realized how good Adam was about caring for souls in this church, okay? And the reason he was good was that when you had some of these horrible things come to you that you had to deal with in the church, Adam was never a drama queen, you know? Adam was just like Max. He was as calm and direct and and objective and helpful as helpful could be. And so I watched him, and then I realized the reason he was this way was that he was a doctor. Because doctors are dealing with train wrecks all the time. That's what doctors do. And so when doctors are in an elders meeting, all of a sudden all the other elders are like lying on the floor gasping for breath. Adam's still there, you know? And he's like, okay, well, what are we going to do about this? So I wanted to write about Adam in the book, but I thought if I did that, I'd make the other elders jealous. So I left it out of the book and used Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he would meet with people after the service, he'd have a deacon out in the entryway. And the deacon would get the name, and then the person would come in. And the people that came into Lloyd-Jones only got him for a couple of minutes. And almost never did they get to sit down. Because Lloyd-Jones had been a physician before he went in the ministry. And so he was diagnostic. And the problem with me is that I'm always wanting to think that what's going on in a meeting with somebody is that it's about me. And my wife is endlessly saying to me, Tim, it's not about you. And I keep thinking it's about me. And so when they come in, I want to ask them how their daughter's doing at her new job. I want to prove to them I'm sensitive to their gammy leg or their aunt's gammy leg. I want to talk about, you know, I'm colorblind, but that's a nice blouse. What color is it? You know. <laughs> and Mary Lee says, it's not about you. And I'm like, yeah, but, 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 but it is. I, I thought it was. You're hurting me. Now, the truth is, what I usually think it's about me is that I think that I am the cause of the sin of the person. 
And I think that if I had simply loved them better, if I had gone to their child's baseball game, if I had read the book they gave me for Christmas, which I would rather die than read, That's what I mean by it being about me. I just think that the reason they're in sin is that I failed them, and often it is the case. But listen, <clears throat> when you go into a doctor's office and he asks you to take off your clothes, you know it's not because he wants to see you naked. It's not about him, is it? It's about you. And so when we care for you as elders and pastors and deacons, it's not about us. It's about you. And do not be surprised if the questions they ask you make you feel like the doctor's helper just asked you to get ready to see the doctor. And so answer the stupid questions. It's not about you either. It's about God. We're in there together. Let's get to work. And so you'll be happy to know that the book is now dedicated to Joel Belts and to Don Jared and Alex McNeely just had a new printing done by Light Source and now Adam Spady is also, the book is dedicated to him because this was Adam, all right? Heal the injured, heal them. Number uh, four, strengthen the ailing. Um, good shepherds have sympathy and empathy for the injured and the sick, but we can't allow our sympathy and empathy to overwhelm our, our work. And that's something that is very frequent in the work of shepherding, where you, you look at the person, you know what needs to be said and done, but you just can't bear the thought of doing it because you're thinking to yourself, if, if will this patient live? That's a constant thought in shepherds' minds. Is this patient gonna live? You know, the therapy that needs to be done with a cancer patient is to bring them to death without actually killing them. And often that's true in the work of ministry. You bring somebody as close as you can to death, which is the end of faith. You can hurt them so much that they just think that God doesn't love them. Because obviously you're not loving them because you wouldn't hurt them if you loved them. And, and of course, you know, that's not true. Anyhow, I'll get off it. I think you've gotten the point, right? Finally, guarding and, fe and, and feeding the healthy. We don't think about this, but this is important. And we'll simply say in regards to protecting healthy sheep, that what was outlined above concerning physical and sexual abuse applies here also. Good shepherds study the diseases and the dangers of sheep. And they are able to anticipate those dangers. And they are able to take steps to turn the sheep away from the dangers. Or sometimes when the danger is a hungry wolf, the good shepherd sets out to kill the wolf before he even gets close to the sheep. It, one of the frustrations in ministry is how often you sheep will look at me and say, oh, oh, that's not a nice voice. Doesn't he know he's scaring me? He doesn't need to scare me. 
And listen, would you let me be a shepherd? There's probably a wolf nearby. Don't tell me how to do my job. Now, I don't really mean that because it is the job of elders to tell me how to do my job. But if you hear a voice that's weird from me, there's probably a reason. <laughs> you know? Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. I've got to shut up because if I talk about this one, we'll be here forever. I have told you in the past about Don Jared. Don and Evelyn were elders of my church up in Wisconsin. Then, elder, then Evelyn resigned. Don agreed to become an elder. And, and, and everything I know about the ministry, well, not everything, but a huge amount I learned from both Don and Evelyn. And they had a son named Mike who went and got, I think it was actually his master's degree. And I can't remember soil sciences, agronomy, I don't remember, at UW-Madison. And then he came up to work the family farm with Don and with Evelyn. And when he came up, the first thing his dad did to transfer the farm to him was to give him the responsibility of deciding what feed the cows would have. Now, if you've ever been a part of a dairy enterprise, you know that the question of feed is like a huge issue. Careful thought, study, consultation goes into choosing the feed for a dairy herd. And Don had a large dairy herd, and so for him to give to Mike the job of deciding what changes to make in the feed mixture was a huge responsibility. It was the most loving thing that dad could do, because everybody knew Don was about the best dairy farmer in the area. And he let his son, and so of course Mike, being a young dude, you know, he's gonna make changes. So he made radical changes to the feed mixture of this dairy herd, right? You know, I wasn't talking to Mike about it, but I was talking to Don about it. And so Don was proud of his son taking ownership and changing the feed mixture. But then what happened was that all of a sudden, before this, this herd had done very well. Good butterfat, good hundredweight. Nice harvesters. And all of a sudden, all the cows began to cast their calves. In other words, they didn't freshen because they didn't deliver. The calves would die before they were born. Miscarriages. And this went on, and it went on, and it went on. And Don was a quiet man. About every few weeks, I'd say, well, <laughs> what's happening? And he'd say, well, I went to so-and-so and asked for them for advice, and I went to such-and-such, and I've done this, and I've done that, and I've done the other thing, but we're still casting all our calves. And we prayed. This went on, if I'm not mistaken, for a year and a half, two years. And you know, it would devastate a dairy herd. And poor Mike, you know, I'm sure that whole time he thought it was because of the feed mix that he had set up. And I watched Don, and Don never changed that feed mixture. And I admired Don so much for not blaming his son. 
You know, I was just so proud of Don for that. They had in the utilities, the utilities checked for stray voltage. Anybody know what stray voltage is? Is there one person here? He knows, you know. Well, that's where the stanchions that the cows stand in, somehow there is electricity that's getting through the milk parlor into the stanchions so that as the cows are supposed to be milked, they're getting shocked, right? No stray voltage. They checked other things. Then finally, they found the problem. You know what the problem was? Stray voltage. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, if I had been Mike's father, I guarantee you that the minute that herd started to have miscarriages, I would have changed the feed mixture back to the original feed mixture. Right? You change something, all of a sudden your cows begin to cast their calves, you change it back quickly. But Don was committed to not undercutting his son and harming his confidence. I just love that. Isn't that sweet? I hope Don and Evelyn come and visit us soon. Now, why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because one of the ways that you care for the healthy sheep is by being very careful to choose the feed mixture. And you know that the feed mixture is the preaching. What should I preach? What texts? What emphasis should I have in the sermons? And you know that in America today, I would say most of the churches, the, um, the feed mixture is bad. Because what it is, Rita Cuffey used to say about one large church in this community that they get a helpful story for the week. And there was not an ounce of hostility or aggression in Rita Cuffey, those of you that didn't know her, but it was just her observation, a helpful story, for, a helpful thought for the week. That's not a proper feed mixture. Your cows will die, and they won't give a good hundred weight, and they won't give good butterfat. Nobody will ever survive as a Christian getting a helpful thought for a week. And so it's appropriate for elders to tell a pastor who is not preaching helpfully, that he has to change his preaching. And if he says that the reason he's preaching soft all the time is because he doesn't want to be a moralist or a pietist, or because he's committed to redemptive historical preaching, or because he thinks that what people really need is the gospel message, and he ends with an altar call in John 3.16, no matter where he is in scripture, or he says that people just need grace... It's your job as an elder to come to that pastor and say to him, you are failing. And he says, what do you mean? I, I'm the owner of this herd. I'm the preacher. I'm the one set apart to preach. And you say to him, yes, you are. And I'm not trying to undercut your authority, but I am telling you that your mixture is wrong. Can we all agree on this? If somebody is preaching grace all the time, they need to be dealt with. They're an antinomian. And they need to be rebuked and exhorted to get back to preaching a good sermon, right? Okay, now, what about if 
The actual problem is that the pastor is preaching good sermons, but the elder doesn't want them. And that's something that you have to be careful of as elders. Because often elders do not want a pastor to go beyond their faith. And you have to be very careful on that. That as an elder, you're not quenching the Holy Spirit. Do do you understand this? And so as elders, it's very dicey to know when you should go ahead and talk to the pastor and when you should bite your tongue because, as a matter of fact, you're not in a good place in your life right now. And if you look inside, you realize you don't want to hear about sin or God's law or repentance because you don't want to repent. Makes sense, doesn't it? And so I just want to end on that note by saying to you that you have to be careful. If you have a pastor as an elder who is constantly preaching grace, you need to talk to him about it. You have a responsibility to hold your pastor accountable to preach biblically. But if you're actually an elder who really doesn't want your pastor to preach biblically, but you want your ears scratched... Be very careful that you don't use your authority over your elder to discourage him or over your pastor. Does that make sense to you? Huh? Okay, now I'm going to end with an illustration. Last night I was reading, I started another book, and this is a biography of Oliver Cromwell. You know who Oliver Cromwell was, the protector, uh, the guy that was involved with the Civil War over in England and on and on. Statue of him outside of Parliament over there. And he, for a long time, was just a landowner out in the country. The first indication that Cromwell might be something more than just a pretty face, a farmer, okay, was when he found out that one of the men in his community was refusing to fulfill the subscription he had promised for a lectureship. Now, you know what a lectureship is, right? I told you earlier. That's where, at that time, they hired men because they had the bishop tell them who their pastor would be, but he was unfaithful. And so Arias would hire a pastor to come and preach and feed them. Feed me, you know? And they would subscribe. This guy got paid by the taxes and and the state church, but this guy got paid by individuals in the church who said, I will pay them this much, you pay them this. And so Oliver Cromwell had the job of going to one of the men who had said he'd pay their lecturer, their preacher, but who was not fulfilling his commitments. And in his letter to this man, trying to get him to fulfill his commitments, this is what Cromwell said. He said, not the least of the good works of your fellow citizens is that they have provided for the feeding of souls. In other words, this is not the smallest good that we do to each other as neighbors, that we try to feed each other's souls, all right? Building of hospitals provides for men's bodies. Building, to build material temples is judged a work of piety. But they that procure spiritual food They that build up spiritual temples, they are the men truly charitable, truly pious. Do you understand this? 
such a work as this was your erecting the lecture. And so what Oliver Cromwell is saying to them is, look, we all recognize that when we build a hospital, that it's a good work. You just think of Bloomington now with that huge hospital going up over there on the east side. And everybody would say, it's a good work to build a hospital. But how many of us would say that it's a good work to build a hospital for souls? And that's what elders do. And so you as a congregation want to give your best love and encouragement to the elders and their wives. Because you disappoint them all the time. And we won't be bitter, get angry, as long as you love us. Just love us. Love covers a multitude of our sins and yours. And I promise we'll love you. I honestly. Afterwards... Jody's going to come up and lead us in the ordination and insulation. And afterwards, as I was giving the benediction of the first service, I thought, you know, I've been talking about our responsibility to you. And undoubtedly, there are people here who say, you failed me. I have real problems, and you haven't noticed. And I say, yeah, I'm sure that's the case right now, if for no other reason because of COVID. We aren't as intimate with you now as we used to be. You come to me, seriously, and you ask my help, because I would love to help you, and so would every other elder and pastor in this church. But we want to build a temple to God here, and you're an absolutely pivotal part of that temple. Every single one of you. There's not one of you that we can dispense with, and there's not one of you that we want to dispense with. Okay? So let's love each other. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you allow us to live together in love. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have received from you through this body. We thank you for the promise of heaven we thank you for the men and women who serve us so faithfully. We pray that you will cause us to be a bright, shining light in this community, that people will look at us, and although they may hate us, they will say, see how they love each other. And we pray now as we go into this ordination service that you will confirm in heaven what Jody and the elders of this church do here on earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.